0: Every December, groups make their predictions for the new year. They all claim to see the future. But only one group has 100% accuracy. The, prognostic, the Procrastinators Club. The pro- Procrastinators Club. At the beginning of each year, the Procrastinators Club makes their predictions for the year that just ended. And guess what? Every prediction is correct. A club spokesman explains, we just get around to our predictions a little later than anywhere everyone else. And there are some unbelieving scholars with an anti-supernatural bias who would like to convince us that Daniel 2 was a member of the Procrastinators Club. His predictions are so sweeping, yet so specific, so panoramic, yet so precise, So obviously supernatural that he has been a favorite target of the liberal critics. Some of the skeptics have suggested that Daniel never existed, that his book was fraudulent, that it was written by someone else long after the events it predicts had transpired. They date the writing of the book around the year 165 B.C., more than 350 years after the time frame referenced in the Bible. Yet Daniel's critics couldn't be more wrong. The Septuagint was the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was written around 285 BC. The book of Daniel was part of the Septuagint. Obviously, Daniel was written prior to the late date of the critics. The Dead Sea Scrolls also confirmed the biblical date of Daniel. And no less an authority than our Lord Jesus testified to Daniel's existence and his prophetic ministry. In Matthew 24, verse 15, our Lord mentions Daniel the prophet by name. That means if you believe in Jesus, you'll believe in the reliability of the book of Daniel. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you've got bigger problems than who wrote Daniel. Daniel was a statesman. He was a government bureaucrat. He was a professional politician who served in the courts of Babylon and Persia, yet he remained loyal to his God his whole life long. Rather than let the temptations of this world whittle away at his convictions, Daniel stayed strong. He refused to wear down. He refused to wimp out. This man was part of an influential minority that for over 80 years was a witness for God. You know, we too are living in an increasingly pagan world that's trying to turn our convictions into compromise. That's why we need to dare to be a Daniel. This man shines as a sterling example. Well, Verse 1 gives us the accurate date of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, secular history records this date as 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, the book of Daniel starts as a tale of three kings. The first was King Jehoiakim. He was a wicked man. His reign marked the apex of idolatry in Jerusalem. The second king was Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon or Shinar, which was Shinar was Babel's ancient name. You remember Genesis chapter 11 tells us that the Tower of Babel was the birthplace of idolatry. It was as if God was saying to his people, Judah, if you want to worship idols, then I will send you to a place steeped with idols. And yet I said this was a tale of three kings. The third king mentioned in these first two verses is the Lord. It's clear Nebuchadnezzar didn't act alone when he besieged Jerusalem and when he looted God's temple. Verse 1 reads, The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. God had warned Judah and warned Judah to turn from their idolatry or judgment would come. Here God fulfills his promise. And don't miss the point, for this is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel God is sovereign. In the affairs of man, he orchestrates the rise and fall of nations. World politics aren't shaped in Washington or Moscow or Jerusalem or Brussels or wherever else you choose. They're shaped in heaven, in the councils of God. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take temple treasures back to Babylon. We're told in verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon with both jewels and Jews. Several of Judah's princes were taken captive, and they were whisked off to Babylon. There they were placed under the care of the master of the eunuchs." In fact, there is a stone that was found in the ruins of Babylon that confirms this as an official office in the Babylonian court, master of the eunuchs. Today, it's on exhibit in London at the British Museum. Well, this Ashpenaz, he took custody of these young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. These were Jewish boys, maybe 14, 15 years old, and they were the cream of the crop. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a policy. He would take the finest young men from the people that Babylon had conquered and he would employ them in his royal court. These guys were the pick of the litter, princes of noble lineage. Handsome, teachable, 1,600 on the SAT, some social grace, boys fit for the king's service. Verse 5, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. In the besieged city of Jerusalem, Hey, life was tenuous. They were hungry. They were looking for their next morsel. The boys were worried for their very survival. But now they're in Babylon. Babylon represented a new world, a fresh start. Imagine them walking the brick streets of Babel. They're on the banks of the mighty Euphrates amidst the towering ziggurats and the impressive hanging gardens. In addition, they're on the king's meal plan. How's that? They even have government jobs. I mean, they're doing pretty good. But there was a catch. All that glitters isn't gold. Verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that all four of these fellows were of royal lineage. They were descendants of King Zedekiah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now these Jewish young men were stripped of their Hebrew names, and they were assigned a Babylonian name. Daniel meant, God is my judge, while Belteshazzar is Baal protects. Hananiah is Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach means command of Marduk. Mishael is Hebrew for who is what God is, while Meshach is Babylonian for who is what Marduk is. Azariah is Yahweh his help, whereas Abednego is servant of Nebo. See, each of these Hebrew teenagers had their God-glorifying name replaced with a name that honored one of the blasphemous idols of Babel, Baal or Marduk or Nebo. The whole process was an attempt to deconstruct their faith, to break down their faith in God and convert them into idolatrous pagans. This was part of Nebuchadnezzar's three-year brainwashing. Give these guys new identities. Give them a secular education. Indoctrinate them into pagan culture. Sounds like what happens today to kids who grew up in Christian families only to leave home and enroll in the state university. Immediately, their faith comes under siege. And unless they're a Daniel, they're not ready. Here's a stat for you. Eighty percent of animals born in captivity when released into the wild get eaten by other animals. Reared in an insular environment, a domesticated animal can't cope with the rigors and the harshness of the real world. And this is the plight of sheltered Christian kids who grow up in a fundamentalist subculture and are never prepared for what's beyond the four walls of their faith. In fact, it was even worse for Daniel, this indoctrination. As if being relocated and renamed and reprogrammed wasn't denigrating enough, our text hints at an even more terrible attack on his personhood. Usually in oriental courts, to prevent the princesses from falling in love with the king's male servants, the king often has the men castrated. It kind of kept the king's harem from any hanky-panky. Notice Daniel's supervisor, his overseer, was Ashpenaz, who is twice called chief or master of the eunuchs. Could it be that Daniel was assigned to the head of the eunuchs because he was one? This would mean that in addition to all the other humiliations he suffered, Daniel and his pals might have gotten neutered. Think about it. Here's a teenage boy who suits up to play baseball, and he no longer has to wear a cup. How devastating would that be? With all the trauma that Daniel and his friends had endured. You know, you might be tempted to expect, even justify, just a little bit of compromise. But Daniel wasn't looking for excuses. Though he answers to a new name, he wears new clothes, he has a new address for his mail, he speaks a new language, he's even learning a new curriculum. A lot has changed for Daniel, but one thing hasn't changed. His heart. Daniel still has a heart for God. Verse 8 tells us, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself notice daniel's concern was to not defile himself defile means to taint to pollute the term is the opposite of the word purity daniel didn't want anyone to question his loyalty to god Thus, he refused to say anything or act in any way that would cast an aspersion on his devotion to the Lord. Daniel couldn't help what had happened to him, his captivity, his place, his name, the strange customs and language, his new occupation, but he could control what he put in his mouth. The food he ate, the libations he drank, they were his choice. He wanted to be sure that no one mistook where he stood with God. Being a Jew, Daniel was bound by the Old Testament dietary laws. To ignore these laws would have been to disobey God. And certainly the king's diet was far from kosher. In addition to being non-kosher, the food served to Daniel would have been officially dedicated to the nation's idols. Thus, to eat from the king's table could be interpreted as participating in the worship Of Babylon's false gods. It wasn't a matter of how far he could compromise. And still please God. Daniel didn't want to run the risk. Of defiling himself or offending God. In any way. He didn't want to be mistaken in any way. Of defiling his God. You know it's true. We all swim in a sea of culture. And we're all assimilated to some extent. Into a certain way of life. Daniel spoke like a Babylonian. Dressed like a Babylonian, learned Babylonian protocol, attended a Babylonian university, answered to a Babylonian name. And I guess you could say all that was okay, but Daniel never became a Babylonian at heart. That was the difference. Daniel was still governed by God's values. And he still watched over his appetites to make sure they were pleasing to God. Daniel knew where to draw the line. Do you know where to draw the line? See, he wouldn't compromise his allegiance to God just to eat at Nebuchadnezzar's table. Daniel respected the king and his position, but he bowed only to God. He put his fate and his faith into God's hands, not in the king's. Here is the question. Who's your daddy, Daniel? See, anyone who knew him realized that God was his daddy. God was his authority. But that's the question we need to get asked tonight. Who's our daddy? If we really trust God, why are we cutting corners? Or lowering our standards? Or cozying up to sin? Who's your daddy? Who's your authority? Daniel refused to let the king dictate what he ate. He stayed loyal, and he consumed only what pleased God. But notice again verse 8. We're told Daniel requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. This is so instructional. Daniel doesn't pick at the cafeteria. He doesn't go on a hunger strike. He doesn't turn over his tray. He doesn't get mad at the Babylonians that they don't share his convictions. I mean, what do you expect from pagans? Daniel realized that in a secular society, folks are more pragmatic than they are principled. Though he's taking a stand for God, and though he says so, he doesn't want to be defiled. He tells them. Nevertheless, Daniel now appeals to their pragmatism. Verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Again, Ashkenaz is a practical guy. I mean, he's pretty fond of Daniel, but why should he expect to risk his neck over Daniel's convictions? There aren't his convictions, they're Daniel's. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he, Ashpenaz, consented with them in this matter. And tested them ten days. Again, I like this. Daniel doesn't just agitate the authorities to get their cooperation. Rather, he navigates. He even negotiates. You know, sometimes we Christians, we climb up on our self-righteous high horse to point out what's wrong with our boss or our authorities. We're quick to scream persecution, when in reality, the world just doesn't understand our convictions. And we don't offer them an alternative first. See, that's what Daniel did. He offered them a pragmatic alternative that would allow him to stay principled. Here Daniel proposes a test. And it's not just about his convictions, it's also about Babylon's objectives. The king wants healthy civil servants. So Daniel gives the king what he wants as well as pleases God. He basically says, hey, let's set aside a 10-day trial. Us Hebrews, we'll eat off the value menu. We'll get our veggies and drink Evian. While you Babylonian candidates, you can have the Babel burgers and the Babel brews. And if the Hebrews turn out fuller and fitter, then who's to complain? Everyone will be happy. Daniel will have a clear conscience. Nebuchadnezzar will have healthy helpers. And God will get glorified. Through Daniel's faith. Here's a more modern example. The sales manager wants you to, oh, tinker with the truth just a little bit to sell the product. Tell a few lies. No big deal. It'll boost the sales. What he wants is income, whereas what God wants is honesty. Thus, why don't you propose a test? Let the other guys do it the boss's way for 10 days while you do it God's way. And at the end of the 10 days, let's see who sells the most. The point is, don't just mandate. Navigate these situations. Trust God. Hey, you as a believer can put the pressure on God. If he wants you to be in that job, trust me, he'll work it out. Again, who's your daddy? Dare to be a Daniel. For God always looks out for his children reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Verse 15 tells us the results of Daniel's test, and at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The plan worked. And understand, there's no biological reason a vegetarian diet would make a noticeable difference in just 10 days. It was God's blessing on these young men that won the victory. And that blessing remained on Daniel's conviction and faith for the whole three years of Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing. Daniel 1 teaches us a lesson for negotiating secular surroundings. Capitulate no, navigate yes. Well, the story ends. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Obviously, it wasn't just the diet that brought such blessing. It was their God. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 tells us, The Lord God of Israel says, those who honor me, I will honor. And that was certainly the case with Daniel and his three friends. Verse 21 tells us, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And this is amazing. This puts the exclamation point on the story. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will eventually fall to the Persian King Cyrus. And guess who Cyrus employs in his new government? An old man named Daniel. You see, because he refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's rules and stay true to his God, Daniel outlived Babylon. God blessed Daniel over Babel. It proves the truth of 1 John 2, verse 17. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Which brings us to chapter 2. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the date now 602 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. In other words, he was so startled by his dream, it was so vivid that he couldn't go back to sleep. And when the king can't sleep, nobody sleeps. For then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. At the time, Nebuchadnezzar was a young general, fresh off military conquest. His father, Nabopolassar, had died while Nebuchadnezzar was in battle. Nebuchadnezzar had ceased fighting and he had returned home to take the crown. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had long wondered about his father's counselors, these magicians, these soothsayers, these sorcerers who claimed to have psychic powers. You see, Nabopolassar was a superstitious idolater. He kept these wizards around to consult the stars and to give him advice, but the young Nebuchadnezzar was skeptical. And he decided to use this dream to test their credibility. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, that's an interesting detail. It prompts a side note. From chapter 2, verse 4, now through the end of chapter 7, the original text of the book is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian court in Daniel's day. And since the content of this section that we'll now be studying deals mostly with Gentile kingdoms, it was written in Aramaic. In chapter 8, when the focus returns back to the Jews, the language of the text also reverts back to Hebrew. Just interesting. Nebuchadnezzar's wizards greet him. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream." And we will give the interpretation. You see, these sorcerers, these Harry Potters of Babylon, they had their occultic manuals, their secret symbolism that they would use to decode dreams. They're asking him to tell them the dream. They're going to look it up in their books, and they're going to you know, just sort of you know, put together the interpretation and, and spit it back to him. But they're surprised in verse 5. For the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. The king offers a nice incentive program here. I mean, this guy ain't messing around. Verse 6, However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, You shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. They're saying, You must not have heard us correctly, king. Tell us the dream first. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, There's only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In essence, they're admitting that their whole profession was a charade. Well, wait a minute. You need a hotline to God to discern both the dream and its interpretation. Yet that's exactly what they claim they had. Verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. They weren't so wise anyway. And so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Apparently, Daniel wasn't in the palace at the time. Perhaps he was on vacation or maybe on a business trip. But boy, he's in trouble too. He's one of these magicians. Then the council and Wisdom, and then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, Daniel must have had Nebuchadnezzar's respect. For one, he gets an immediate audience, and then he's able to buy some time, time that the king wasn't willing to give the others. But Daniel knows he's now on the clock. He's got to deliver. It's time to pray. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven Concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. You wonder, was Daniel a great man of faith, or was he just a man with nothing to lose? He's probably both. (laughs) He relays the scenario to them, and they all start to pray. And I would imagine they were praying a fervent, passionate prayer. But notice the next verse. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. But notice this. Don't don't trip over this. Before Daniel got the answer, he fell asleep. It came to him in a night vision. He got it while he was asleep. Can you imagine facing the same scenario and being able to go to sleep? Hey, if ever there was an occasion for an all-night prayer vigil, this was it. I would have been praying and pacing, praying and pacing. I wasn't about to go to sleep until God gave me the answer. And guess what? I would have missed out on God's answer had I not gone to sleep. It was not just Daniel's prayer that God responded to. It was Daniel's faith. Daniel had the faith to pray. But then he had the faith to leave it in God's hands and rest well and go to sleep. God responded to his confident, faith-filled sleep as well as to his passionate and fervent prayer. I find that interesting. Verse 20 tells us, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you. O God, my fathers, you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. He offers his beautiful praise. God is sovereign and God speaks. He reveals secrets. He gives wisdom. Reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Well, Daniel asked, and God gave. Well, Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to them, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Notice this Arioch. He's a typical government bureaucrat. He's trying to squeeze out of this situation just a little bit of credit for himself. I have found the man. Here he is. Verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Ironically, Arioch tried to take the credit, but Daniel was quick to give the credit to God. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Daniel doesn't have any prognosticating powers. What he knows is what God has revealed. And two, he says that the king's dream and vision are for the latter days. This is a technical term in the Bible that speaks of the time just prior to Jesus' second coming. Whenever we see the latter days, we can think of the future. It begins in verse 29. As for you, O king, thoughts come to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36. This is the dream Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Now the king saw this tall image. How high? We're not sure. But it's interesting, when Nebuchadnezzar tries to build a replica of what he's seen here in chapter 2, in chapter 3, he builds it 90 feet tall. Daniel sees this metallic man. He has a head of gold. He has a torso, a chest and arms of silver. He has an abdomen, belly and thighs of bronze. He has legs of iron. He has feet mixed of iron mixed with clay. It's like a robo image. Something out of a sci-fi movie. And notice the metals are progressive. From top to bottom, they get heavier. In other words, this image is top heavy, which makes it very fragile at the bottom. You've heard the expression clay feet. Now you know where the idiom comes from. And notice the stone. It's cut out without hands. That's another way of saying it's of supernatural origin. Man has nothing to do with this. This stone strikes the image in the feet and the whole enchilada crumbles. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay are crushed into dust and blown away but in its place... The stone that struck the image becomes a great mountain. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone mountain rising up in the place of that image. This is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. But what in the world does it mean? Well, Daniel also has the answer. Verse 37 begins the interpretation. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything." And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, God's kingdom. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Nebuchadnezzar has been shown a picture of Gentile world domination. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus also spoke of a period that he called the times of the Gentiles. Prior to 586 BC and the fall of Jerusalem, God's kingdom on the earth was the nation Israel. God hoped that Israel would obey him, who would, they would obey his laws, and that they would be a witness to the world. God would make his people great, Israel would rule the world. But Israel failed. She fell into idolatry. God had to destroy Jerusalem. And he gave the world governments over to Gentile control. And that's been the status quo ever since. And it all was predicted right here beforehand in this dream by Daniel. The head of gold or Babylon got first crack at world dominion. The Babylonian empire lasted from 605 to 550. 36 BC. Next came the Medo-Persian Empire, the arms and chest of silver. The Persians reigned from 536 to 333 BC with the advent of Alexander the Great. The Greeks and Alexander were next up. They were the bronze belly and thighs, and they ruled the world from 333 to 168 BC. Afterwards, came the Romans, the legs of iron. They ruled the world from 168 B.C. until the 4th century A.D. The Roman Empire eventually split into east and west, thus the two legs of iron. The empire in the west was ruled in Rome. The eastern empire was in Constantinople. And each of these successive kingdoms were inferior to its predecessor, just as Daniel had predicted Nebuchadnezzar was the world's most absolute despot. His whims became laws. Cyrus the Persian, he had a more limited power. Once he spoke a word, it did become law, but he couldn't go back and change it. The law became superior to the king. Greeks and Romans, they toyed with a representative form of government. They introduced democratic ideas. There are scholars who see the clay in this vision As modern democracy, a government by the people and for the people, us being made of clay. Clay being a symbol of humanity. And as with the rest of the vision, democracy coming last means that it is the weakest and the riskiest form of government. We knew that from the start. During the colonial days, Alexander Tyler, he wrote these words about the fall of the ancient Athenian Republic. He said, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasure. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy followed by dictatorship. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency back to bondage. And I'll just let you guess where we are in that progression. It could be that the clay mixed with iron is a time when democracy begins to wane and dictatorships on the earth begin to emerge. This is how the Gentile governments of the earth conclude their reign. Now, what happens to the legs of iron or the Roman Empire? We have the succession. This government is succeeded by that government, and so these empires are succeeded to each other until we get to the Roman Empire. What happens to the legs of iron? Who conquered Rome? And the answer is no one. Rome wasn't conquered from without. It crumbled from within. And yet this is the empire that is pictured last The feet of this image are iron mixed with clay. The iron of Rome mixed with the clay or the rest of humanity. Now historically, as in this vision, Rome crumbled into many different pieces. And for a thousand years, Europe was a quagmire of warring city-states. Eventually, each of Rome's fragmented parts had its own crack at world dominance the Spanish Armada ruled from the sea, British imperialism once dominated the globe, Napoleon in France, Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, all had their attempts to unify Europe or ancient Rome under one flag. But what military force has been unable to achieve, economic factors are now starting to accomplish. Today, the two legs of old Rome, east and west, are reuniting. After the fall of communism, a superstate has emerged. The European community now corresponds with the borders of ancient Rome. Legs of iron have mixed with the clay of humanity in this great Roman revival. Today, Europe, bound by the Maastricht Treaty, is one community. There is a single currency. They're open borders. There's an integrated foreign policy. They even have a president. Of course, unification is not without its problems. The recent British exit from the EC is proof. As Nebuchadnezzar's vision foresaw, clay and iron don't naturally adhere. Yet, since 1957, after World War II and the Treaty of Rome, unstoppable forces have overcome ancient hostilities to create a unified Europe. The point is is that ancient Rome is being reassembled just as Daniel said that it would. And why is this happening? Well, it's because God is at the helm. God is moving the pieces on the board. God is manipulating the nations until they're aligned as his prophets predicted. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When this age of Gentile world government begins to cease and begins to fade, God is going to turn His attention back to Jerusalem, and He's going to raise up Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will begin to rule itself. It was in June 1967 that Israeli paratroopers took control of the old city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was back in Jewish hands for the first time since 586 B.C. It was a sign. It was a sign that the times of the Gentiles, this period of Gentile world domination, is now drawing to a close. Nebuchadnezzar's image is about to crumble. And the reunification of Europe is also setting the stage. Europe will eventually take the form of a ten-nation confederacy. Notice the image of Nebuchadnezzar sees here in chapter two, that he sees here in chapter two, has two feet, thus 10 toes. We'll see in Daniel chapter seven that the ten toes represent 10 European nations. And it's during the days of this ten-state revived Roman empire that the stone, that which was cut out without hands, that which was of supernatural origin, will strike the image and replace it with a mighty mountain, thus the kingdom of God. Throughout Scripture, Messiah is represented as a stone. And here, Jesus is the stone of supernatural origin. No man is responsible for his birth or his rise. And in the days of this revived Roman Empire, Jesus will return to earth. He will strike the Gentile kingdoms and replace them, finally, with His reign, and with God's kingdom. This is why we get excited over what's going on today in our world with the European community, with the revival of Israel, with the talk of a new Rome. It's all a sign that Jesus, is, His second coming, is right around the corner. Chapter 2 closes. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar, gosh, the world's most powerful despot, bowing down on his face before this Hebrew prisoner of war, this Daniel. What a scene that must have been. And then admitting that the God of Daniel is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were his three Hebrew pals, Over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And that's where we'll pick it up next week.